Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi guys, no, 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 no. Yes, I did that. And you would do it too for a check. Hey, what is this? A face? What is this? A book? Oh my god. Facebook. I get baby. Welcome to Don't Let This Flop, a podcast about internet culture brought to you by Rolling Stone. Where two smart people talk about the dumbest shit that happened online this week. I'm Liz Garber-Paul. And I'm EJ Dixon. You may be wondering, where's Brittany? Where's our favorite curly-haired Leo slash 1D stand slash American Girl doll influencer? She's on vacation this week. It's her birthday. She's celebrating herself. Her Instagram stories are fabulous. You should follow her. So our amazing producer, Liz Garber-Paul, has kindly agreed to step in. She's a Libra. And she knows a lot about cannabis and serial killers. It's true. Those are two of the topics that I know most about. I am honored to be here. I also, as EJ has noted in this pre-written intro, I do crochet. And I am excited to talk about that as well. Is there anything that you'd like to tell our audience about crochet? I cannot contribute to the discourse. So please just take the reins. I mean, I'm really into lace these days. So I would say just really start out small and see what you can create. Would you classify crocheting as a heterosexual activity? I feel like it's pretty gay. Okay. It's queer. It's like creative. You don't have to like follow any kind of rules necessarily. You can just kind of, it's definitely more queer than knitting. I think knitting is straight and crochet is more queer. So on that note, (laughs) in that vein, let's hop right over to straight people. Straight people. Where we've got something, I, I guess this is a queer story in a way. I have been purposely not paying attention so, uh, to this story so that you could explain it to me. So I'm really excited. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'm honored that I'm your introduction to this. It's rare that we feature a royal in the straight people segment, but it's also rare that we come across such a bit of salacious gossip about the royals who are famously very close-lipped to begin with, as is what happened when the hashtag Prince of Pegging started trending last week. Did you see this, Liz, on Twitter? I did not. I saw that you were talking about it, and then I just immediately was so excited for this very moment. So (laughs) There's a lot to say, but it was based on a tip from Dumois, which is an Instagram account we've talked about at length before, which publishes celebrity blind items. I want to say, I want to be clear that they're unverified. They could very well be trash, but some of them do prove to be true, so people tend to take them semi-seriously. It's a blind item about a British royal whose extramarital affairs are, quote-unquote, an open Open secret in London and amongst the English aristocrat set. Here's what it says. At a recent media party, I was told the real reason for the affair was the royal's love of pegging, which his wife is far too old-fashioned to engage in. The wife doesn't mind, and in fact prefers her husband getting his sexual needs met elsewhere, as long as things don't become emotional. So you're familiar with pegging, right? Absolutely. Do you want to just take our, perhaps our elder listeners through? As an elder millennial, I feel equipped to do this. Yeah, so pegging is the act of generally a person without a penis putting a strap on on to have anal sex with another person. Did I get that right? That was very inclusive. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the practice sort of, people became aware of it with Broad City. That was kind of pegging's like cultural flashpoint 
where one of Abby's partners asked her to peg him. Before that, it was kind of seen as like this very taboo sex act that heterosexual males would sort of abashedly request from their partners. And there was a lot of like, I would say homophobia surrounding like the conception of pegging that like if a guy is asking for this, if a guy is into this, then he's secretly gay, which is obviously not true. I would say that perception has shifted somewhat within the past like five years or so. Definitely. So the next question obviously becomes who's this royal and who would you guess this royal to be? If you were betting woman. Oof. So Charles probably too old, right? Harry doesn't live in London. So I guess that leaves probably Prince William, right? Yes. I My first guess was William as well. In large part because he has been subject to rumors of extra, extramarital affairs for like a really long time. Like, have you heard about the rumors about him and Rose Hanbury? No. She goes by the moniker. Again, we don't look up things to pronounce them. The Marchioness. I do know this is pronounced Chumley. It's spelled Cho Mondeley, but it's pronounced <laughs> Chumley, which is so British. She's a former model. She's like beautiful and impossibly statuesque. And her husband is a carrot, which is like kind of a recurring theme in the social circle. And in 2019, there was a story in The Sun that is no longer there. It's been completely wiped, suggesting that Kate Middleton and Rose, who had been very good friends for some time, had had a falling out. And there was further suggestion that Prince William allegedly had an affair with Rose, and that was part of the reason why tensions between William and Harry were very high and why Harry and his wife Meghan famously moved to Montecito where they currently live. They don't have their royal titles anymore. They're just sitting there chilling, like not making Netflix series and podcasts, even though they're getting paid a lot of money to do both of those things. <laughs> but the palace is really good at killing these types of stories that are unfavorable to the royal family. So that story in The Sun that I talked about totally wiped. It's now only available via internet archive. And it also seems like Kate and William are at least trying to cosmetically make it seem like they're still friends with Rose Hanbury of, of Chumley because they've been spotted going to church together. Rose was also photographed at Prince Philip's memorial service. So ostensibly they are still friends, but this definitely set the stage for rumors to brew about this couple. How has the the British royal kind of media conglomerate like been dealing with this? It's like it's have they given it any space? No, the palace is very, very good at training information with British tabloids, which are even more mercenary and even more ruthless than American tabloids by like a lot. So if there's an unfavorable story that's about to come out about a member of the family, they'll be like, well, in order for you to not publish this, we'll offer you this exclusive or we'll give you this like slightly less dirty story that you can publish instead as long as you don't run yours. So I have a feeling that all of these rumors have been pretty effectively buried for that reason. Sure. There's been rumors about the royals forever, right? And like even with like Diana Anna. And in the 90s, there were all sorts of rumors like that Harry was the son of the milkman, essentially. Yeah, of her. I think it was like her trainer or her groom or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was really hot. <laughs> good for Diana, you know? Yeah, good for Diana. But naturally, when people saw the Dumois tip, they immediately connected it to Prince William for the, the above reasons. And it's funny for a few reasons, most notably because I don't know what you think of when you think of William, Liz, but I think of being like a wet blanket who has absolutely no connection to reality whatsoever. <laughs> he just looks so much like his father at this point. It's like becoming disturbing. There is probably my favorite TikTok of all time. It's so mean, but it's some kid playing the Jurassic 
no, it's the Home Alone Christmas song, really badly on recorder with pictures showing how badly Prince William has aged. (laughs) (laughs) It's really sad. It's one of the biggest tragedies of the 20th century, honestly. I vividly remember going to the mall in a like middle school this probably was like mid to late 90s and like at claire's they would sell posters of harry and william and they were so cute and they were like these huge posters of like them riding horses and stuff and like all girls were like super into them and it just i to see how far they've fallen you know like harry definitely kept his hair and like did well he looks great yeah he looks great i mean and he got Meghan markle We love that. But yeah, I don't know. It's been rough for William. William is just known for being like a drip. He makes Justin Timberlake look self-aware and soulful. (laughs) And if he is, in fact, like in an ethically polyamorous relationship and he's getting his prostate tickled, like that would be by far the most interesting thing about him. (laughs) Good for him. Yeah, exactly. So I love this rumor for that reason. It humanizes him in like an actual interesting kind of way. I saw this editorial that said, like, stop making jokes about Prince William loving pegging because it's homophobic for you to say that he's a dildo hungry power bottom. (laughs) I think that's so silly because, like, I don't know. I haven't really seen people shaming him for it. It's objectively funny. I I don't know. It's objectively a great piece of gossip. Absolutely. Anytime a piece of gossip is so far away from the, what did you say, the wet blanket that you think someone might be, like, it's great. That's exactly what we want out of our gossip. Exactly. Like you said, it humanizes him. I think it's only, only good PR for the firm, honestly. I find it highly doubtful he even knows this is happening. But according to Google Trends, searches for pegging have gone up for 100% as of this hashtag trending. So if there are more straight men opening their minds up to this, (laughs) that's a good thing. (laughs) Gonna get RS Rex on that. On pegging? RS Rex pegging. (laughs) I've been begging them to do that article for so long. Wait, really? You've been pitching a pegging? Yeah. For RS Rex specifically? For for RS, for like our, for our, you know, the part of our site that does like product recommendations. I really wanted like a how-to pegging guide. I feel like it's great. It'd be great for SEO. Well, it would actually be amazing for SEO. I will admit, I have been on neither side of a pegging, so I don't really know. But I feel like between the two of us, we've got, we know enough people in like sex toy PR that we could find out what like the really great... Harnesses? Straps are, the harnesses. (laughs) That's the thing is, I don't actually know the terminology, but I feel like we can figure it out what it is and people would read that i think that's a great idea anyway i love this i think it is aligned with the legacy of his father who was famously caught on a tape phone recording telling camilla parker bowles he wished he could be her tampon that was an amazing moment again something that people reacted with disgust about but it was like just a lighthearted moment of flirtation and like silliness and they're still together i stand them and this family is nasty and i love it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i feel like i've totally had forgotten about that tampon comment and now i'm I might be switching my vote back to Charles being the one. (laughs) In other straight people news, Bama Rush Talk is coming back. In case you don't recall last year, TikTok was completely overrun with videos of girls rushing for University of Alabama sororities. It will perhaps not shock you to learn that I was not involved in Greek life, and I'm pretty sure EJ wasn't either. I was not. 
You were not. <laughs> I was very much not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Art school kids here. But what I can gather, the videos featured PNMs or prospective new members doing various outfits of the day videos for their week long rush activities, including philanthropy day, where you go to various sororities and see what kind of charities they support. Sisterhood day, where you tour various sororities. And finally, bid day, where you learn if any have made you an offer. So all these PNMs were making videos about their outfits before these various events. Hi, my name's Nicole. This is Sisterhood Day 2. Dress altered state badge and necklace from Pythi. Shoes, Lena's, hopefully that didn't flash my cooter. Hair <laughs> curled, jewelry, normal. Hey y'all, I'm Allison. Um, hair curled, earrings are from Sheen. Rest of the earrings, wear them every day. Y'all know what's going on. Um, dress is Lena's, necklace is Pi-Fi, name tag is Pi-Fi, shoes are Steve Madden. Hi y'all, my name Reagan. My outfit is from Nicole. My badge, Pi-Fi. My necklace, Pi-Fi. My earrings, just normal. My hair, natural. My shoes is Sheen. People became obsessed with this, and I think that's for a few reasons. For starters, all of the girls look exactly the same. They wear the same sheen mini dresses, the same wedge sandals, they have the same flat ironed white blonde hair. Occasionally there's like a brunette and you sort of get like immediately to go into fight or flight mode on that person's behalf. So EJ, your sister was in a sorority, right? I won't like get into specifics, but she was in a sorority at a Southern university and she has talked about Rush Week and like all the politics involved and how they basically just like, like all of the members just sit around and like, assess people based on all of these factors like their physical appearance and it just strikes me as very dark yeah it does seem a little judgmental so at the university of alabama in particular apparently those sororities were only officially desegregated in 2013 and would you not know it from looking at these videos everyone is white and I think people outside the U.S. specifically were fascinated by this and why it exists, which honestly, it probably shouldn't. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why the Greek system shouldn't exist. And there's been debate for decades about this. They make the schools money. So despite the fact that there's all this discourse about hazing rituals and racial and class components to this, like it'll probably just keep going unabated. It's been interesting to see people who aren't American commenting on these videos being like, wait, so people do this in America? Like it's just totally, totally beyond like what the average person <laughs> in Dublin thinks their life experience. Do they not have Greek life in other countries? I guess I never even really thought about that. I don't think so. I think it's a purely it's a American, very American thing. That makes sense. How do we line people up and get to like judge them and then maybe like beat them and some like light sexual harassment? That those are all of very American practices <laughs> that you just named. <laughs> I will say I had this a dear friend of mine started dating this girl. I don't know, it must have been around 2013. And we were all like a little bit older than her. And she had just graduated from college where she had been in Greek life. And for my birthday one year, she made me a paddle, which oh, I God. guess was like a thing that like you why? To like, it was like a show of respect or something for what? like your no. like for like your elder and yeah. So I have this. I still I must have it somewhere. And it was like pictures of us and like the nickname that we had for like the house I lived in at the time, which was just like an apartment in Brooklyn. And I thought it was really sweet. And I was like, Am I supposed to like beat you up with this board now? I would have just straight up been like, What am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in this. Get this away from me. <laughs> I actually, I hung it on my wall for a long time. It was weird. 
It's oh, fine. That was nice of you. <laughs> I was trying to be supportive. Anyway, so back to this drama. So are you seeing in any of these TikToks, have we seen any actual violence or is it just... No, 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 no. <laughs> it's very innocuous. It's just like, it's outfits of the day. It's like, what's in my rush bag? It's people talking about going to these various events like and there are certain lines in these videos that have become memes like they'll be like the bag is from Longchamp the dress is from Shein jewelry is normal like what does that mean jewelry is normal (laughs) (laughs) they always talk about how they're wearing something from the pants store even though they're not pants so people were really confused by that but apparently the pants store is like an Alabama based clothing chain that does not in fact just sell pants interesting so why is it Alabama specifically do other places not do this kind of like TikTok promotion Content. I think they do. I think it was Alabama that really caught on because of the factors that you mentioned above, like just how generic everybody looks and everybody has a Southern accent and how much Alabama girls sort of fit the stereotypical white Southern sorority girl model. I think that was really why it took off, just because it was like so perfect. People got like very, 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 very invested in this. So when do we find out? I mean, are you rooting for anyone? Like, do you have a favorite? No, I don't really like it. Honestly, (laughs) it's just starting. It's like just gearing up right now. So I don't think people have really had time to get invested quite yet. It's going to be something that happens over the next like week or two weeks. It happens in August. Okay, got it. Yeah, it happens like in the weeks leading up to school starting. It's a little uncomfortable for me, honestly. Like I think that a lot of the discourse last year sort of glossed over like the race and class elements involved. Like you mentioned that they desegregated like just a few years ago. And it's also, I mean... Rushing a sorority is so expensive. Like they're pay- these girls are paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to do this. God, I can only imagine. Yeah. So it's funny and it's not really like harmful. It's not hurting anybody. It's just triggering for me. I don't know. I just feel like these girls are going to leap out of the screen and bully me at any minute. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> That's a fair worry. Yeah. But it's fascinating. I mean, you should you should check out the videos. I'm gonna. Are you interested in like girls named Grayson Edmondson explaining what's in their Longchamps rush bag and mispronouncing Longchamps? I mean, I'm just excited to find out what a rush bag is, honestly. It's things they carry around for rush. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. So I'm gonna show y'all what I have in my rush bag. I'm gonna be using my pink Longchamp bag and I tied a little ribbon with my initials on it to the side so I know it's mom. Yeah, they sound like gems. College is a hard time being a being a late teenager, early 20-something is a hard time, and I wish them luck in uh, navigating that however they can. That's a very empathetic read. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Do we want to talk um, about furries now? I always want to talk about furries, EJ. Yay! So our next story is about yet another instance of the furry community possibly having a Nazi problem. And before I get too much farther, I'm going to explain this all out. I found out this weekend that this is a topic I know a lot about that other people don't. And they look at me funny when I just launch into stuff like this. Do you often talk about furries? I Well, I was like trying to explain this segment to a friend of mine and he was like, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I think we should probably like just quickly go through what furries like are. There are people who are really into anthropomorphized animals. Like they either dress up as them or they draw them or they make cartoons of them. They create these things called fursonas, which are essentially like furry personas. <laughs> they buy and design these huge costumes that cost thousands of dollars. 
So last week, a man named Michael Edward Herman, who is a 35-year-old known online as Kenny Lupine, was arrested for making threats on Twitter. I am still trying to find out who is representing him to get comment from them. But so according to the West Virginia Department of Homeland Security, he was allegedly threatening local and national politicians. This was all in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I haven't seen these tweets, but I'm gonna go ahead and say he was probably not pro-abortion. That's because according to the Dog Patch Press, which is a Twitter account and website that tracks furry news, Lupin was known for making some pretty hateful statements over the years. And from what I could tell from those tweets, it was a lot of really nasty things about trans people. And it was also just kind of like general right-wing like MAGA content. Anyway, why does this matter? Uh, because yeah. he's the second person who's from the furry community in like the last week to be arrested for allegedly making threats. But they are not the only two. Um, they're uh, starting in about 2017. In, in April 2017, there were a bunch of reports. Rolling Stone did one, and I clearly very clearly remember assigning it to a writer who gave me the same look that my friend did this weekend. And it was called, Does the Furry Community Have a Nazi Problem? And because in 2017, I don't know if you guys remember April 2017 as vividly as I do, but it was a pretty freaky time. Obviously, a few months later, that's, you know, when we had Charlottesville, that's when there's a whole Unite the Right rally, that's when we're really seeing the MAGA crowd kind of coalesce into the kind of scary alt-right that existed there and continues to exist in different places now. At that point in April, there was a group called the Furry Raiders, and one of their looks was wearing an armband that people said looked like a Nazi armband, and they were planning on coming to a thing called Rocky Mountain Furcon. They said they weren't Nazis, but there was enough back and forth that, and I think threats of violence on both sides, that was also the infamous time of punching Nazis. So there was enough back and forth that the organizers deemed it an incredible enough threat, and then their insurance costs went through the roof, and and they decided to just shut it down. But I feel like ever since then, there has been this conversation about what really are furries and why there seem to be kind of these darker corners of furrydom. I think the thing that people used to talk about kind of dating back to like 2014 or so, when you start seeing a real like explosion of furry content on the internet, is this discussion about whether or not it was like a sex thing. So I think there is like this ongoing desire from the sane stream to try and like figure out what it is about furries and like why people would be into this because I feel like it's just too big of a concept for a lot of people to wrap their heads around why someone would dress up as an anthropomorphized animal and go to conventions and like live their life through this frame unless they're like oh it's a sex thing oh it's a Nazi thing. Yeah. And I went to one called Midwest Fur Fest. And I remember when I was there going back to Nazi furries, Milo Yiannopoulos had apparently decided to lean into being a furry and was like threatening to show up. And that was a big topic of conversation at the con. He didn't end up showing up, but all of the furries were like, wait, get Milo Yiannopoulos like the fuck out of here. He is not welcome here. Um, and I think that's kind of the general attitude that they have towards this fringe group of Nazi furs which is, this is about inclusion, this is about acceptance, this is not about 
whatever the hell, like tweeting anti-abortion and transphobic <laughs> things into the ether and wearing like swastika armbands. Like they have no patience for that. It's an apolitical community, right? Like it's not based around any kind of like political leanings at all. So you, one would expect there to be different kinds of contingents within a community that large, because we're also talking about a lot, a lot of people, right? Yeah, I think that's mostly true. I think it is inherently an apolitical community. I think there's a lot of overlap. There are a ton of, I think it has a very high representation of LGBTQ people and neurodivergent people. And those types of people obviously tend to be more progressive politically. Sure, sure. So I do think it skews progressive, but you're right. Like it's very much, it's in any large subculture, there is going to be a smaller group of people who are more to the right or are more likely to harbor extremist views. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, I just feel like we've seen so much of the rise of this kind of rhetoric, especially in very online communities since 2017 or so. Also, again, during another rise during the pandemic. So I guess I see this as the kind of fringe offshoot, even though two people may have been arrested in the last week or so, that's still two out of thousands and thousands and thousands. Yeah. And these are all, again, like very online people spending a lot of time in these corners of the internet where you might pass around some drawings of your persona and you might get like a side of blood libel or something. (laughs) Your point about how people don't understand that it's not a sex thing. I think that people just have such a hard time wrapping their heads around anything that sort of diverges from their conception of normality, that it really becomes like the dominant narrative for quite some time, which is unfortunate for because I I have nothing but positive things to say about the furry community. I'm, I love furries. Your, your report that you wrote coming back from Midwest Fur Fest is one of my favorite pieces we've done together. It's just like, I don't think I even Thank understood. You. I don't think I even understood like just how powerful being able to have that kind of barrier between yourself and the world could be for someone who's socially awkward or having a hard time coming out of their shell. Yeah, I didn't either. It genuinely came as a huge and really touching surprise to me. I remember sitting in a panel for people with autism in the furry fandom. And somebody said something like, for just a couple of days, I am not autistic. I am like an anthropomorphized version of the 1912 ship, the Titanic. And I was like, <laughs> that's so beautiful that they have that outlet. And it sucks that these people are like making it worse for them. I did want to say just one more note with the furry thing, that this is coming also at a time when the right is really demonizing furries and maligning them like we talked about a few episodes back with the furry moral panic like there was that rumor that went around that all of these like congress people were saying in like speeches that these high schools were like creating litter boxes and bathrooms so kids who identified as furries could shit in them which was sort of like shorthand for transphobic sentiment Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm oh, these kids are identifying as they is, so they might as well start identifying as dogs or cats. So I think it's interesting that this is happening now, sort of on the tail end of that. And I wonder if maybe, this is just pure speculation, but I'm wondering if there is a growing like Nazi fur contingent, whether that's in response to sort of the mainstream culture's increasing demonization of furries. So... I think that the kind of person who might be attracted to a fursona lifestyle is somebody who, like we discussed, is maybe 
not super confident in the body that they have, maybe not super confident in their own intelligence, maybe feels like they don't live up. Not that they don't, but has that kind of like lowered self-esteem where you might benefit from putting on an outfit and going out there. And I, I wonder if there is in the Venn diagram of things, like it's a very tiny sliver at the middle, but what the alt-right and what like fascist ideologies do is like gives you a context in which to live, like where your decisions are right and they're backed up and like you're part of the majority and you're accepted. And so I wonder if there's a little bit of overlap there of people who are just so uncomfortable in their own reality that they're looking on the internet for these different kinds of outlets. I think that makes perfect sense. I totally agree with you. I think both the fandom and the alt-right, for completely different reasons, offer disenfranchised people an outlet for them to sort of a express their disenfranchisement and also feel a sense of belonging that they wouldn't feel in everyday life and yeah so i think that very small sliver of the venn diagram between nazi furs and furries kind of represents that we talk a lot about sex and the internet and general horniness on here, but truth be told, we don't really get all that personal. But someone who does is Remy Casimir, who is a very funny comedian and the host of the podcast, How Come. I will not spell it for you. It is spelled the way you probably imagine. Remy had never had an orgasm when she first started her podcast at the age of 28. And though she achieved her goal fairly on via The Womanizer, the story didn't end there. And she has continued to have leading comedians, experts, and content creators on the podcast to navigate the dizzying world of sex on the Internet. She's incredibly funny, super fearless. So we decided to have her on. So can you start by telling us like a bit about your trajectory and how you started your podcast? For sure. So I was doing comedy for a few years already and I kind of like pre comedy didn't think too much about orgasms. Like I thought that they seemed mythical or like the girls who were having them like we're just really lucky because nobody was really talking about it with me. People were talking about like their sex lives, but they weren't talking about like pleasure per se. And it wasn't until I was like really doing comedy regularly that I started seeing women and non-binary people with vulvas my own age talking about their sexual experiences and their orgasms specifically. And I would always be like, huh, like, how are you doing that? Like, and I would talk to them after shows and be like, Hey, like that joke about the five orgasms, that was hilarious. And they'd be like, that wasn't the joke part of the joke. And they would kind of like take sympathy on me and just be like, Oh, like, here's like what I did to learn how to do it. And it was like these unofficial assignments that I would either try and do and give up or I would just like not do it at all because I just thought, Oh, my, my body's just like different or broken. Like it's not going to happen for me. Do you remember any of those assignments? That people gave me outside of the podcast? Yeah, at first, yeah. So my friend Esther Steinberg's recommendation to me, she was like, you need first to like rub your clit for like 30 minutes with lube or whatever. And I did try and do that, but it was like boring to me. Like I was just like, what am I? I don't know like what I'm doing. And then she had also suggested to me that she had a guy who was really good at giving head. She was like, I can lend him to you. And I was like, I'm... No, thank you. But like, that's really nice of you. Like a Mr. Pussy type guy? Like somebody who was like, Exactly, known? exactly. Oh, wow. I thought no, that was it, a myth. <laughs> no, no, no. He like, it was a guy that she was like currently dating, but she was just like, he's just really good at it. And like, you can have him. And I was like, mm, no, 
Forget it. I'm not dating anyone who's known as Mr. Pussy. Why not? Well, maybe I want more than that. Oh, sweetie, if a man is good at that, there is nothing more. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so what's one thing that your podcast has taught you about how people have sex? So once I got the like informal assignments for people and I kept like giving up on it, I realized I needed something that was going to like hold me more accountable. So I started the podcast and the way that it was set up, everybody would tell me about their first time coming and then they would have to give me like formal assignments that I'd actually have to follow through on on the podcast and I like blew my load by episode 6. So that was great. Do you mean, do you mean literally or figuratively? Both. Just to be clear. <laughs> okay. So you had an orgasm by episode six. Yes. I was like, oh, I guess I must end the podcast. But then what was interesting is that I learned people wanted to hear more about like what I could do after that. Like, can you do it internally? Can you do it with another person? Can you do it with these means? And yeah, that was fun. So I kept doing that. And I also learned that other people had other things that they were working on personally or things that they felt ashamed of or things that they felt alone about. So I wanted to just like explore other people's things and make them like kind of like heal them the way that like the podcast did for me. Did you have any hesitation about talking about something so personal that your like mom would hear or your dad would hear? I mean, I think being a comic already kind of like paved the way for just being able to talk about stuff that other people normally wouldn't in public. So my parents had already been exposed to me talking about like how much weed I smoke and like sucking dick on stage, like other things that they had heard of. And I felt that this was something that I really, really wanted to do and I thought was going to be like healthy for me. And I've learned since that like orgasms are very healthy and my parents are both medical people. So they were both really on board the whole time. That was never like an issue. I was most nervous about like random cis straight guys finding the podcast and being like, oh, I could do this for you and like making me feel uncomfy in that way. But then I also was lucky that I had a boyfriend at the time, which is the ultimate barrier. That's the, what I was most nervous about. And, and I did think, oh, people are going to think I'm like a freak. Like there was a moment in time where I had recorded the first two episodes. The guests on the second episode made me feel so weird about not having had an orgasm. Like they made me feel like so unexperienced and so immature and just like a loser. And I had like a full breakdown and I was crying to my boyfriend. I was like, I can't put this podcast out. Like people are going to think I'm a freak. And it was like, it took like three more months from that time to actually launch the thing. How does he feel about the podcast and the fact that you're so open about your sexuality in this way like I think there would be a danger for a lot of men that they would see it as somehow a reflection of them that their girlfriend has never had an orgasm I mean you can't expect somebody to give you an orgasm if you haven't done it for yourself he was always trying very hard and yeah he never had an issue with it again like he's, he's a comic too so he's used to a me talking about him on stage but also him talking about me on stage like this it's not something that we're unaccustomed to and I, I feel very lucky about that because there was no like like people have asked all the time like what does Ben think about it and it's like of course his opinion matters but it was more about like my journey and it was something that he was like yeah no I fucking want this for you and he's like happy that I achieved it 
to. You said you were worried that like men would try to message you about it or that people would see you as an experience. Has it been more positive reaction? Oh, definitely. The people who have come in and been like, oh my God, like I am out here too and having the same problem. And like, you felt alone. Like I feel alone. Like we've all really found this sense of community and there have been thousands of people now who have followed my same assignments and had their own first orgasm. So that's just like something I never thought would happen. Like I, I always say, like I started the podcast really selfishly and like, I can't believe it ended up helping other people in this way. So that was unexpected and really fucking cool. What has it taught you about the way people talk about sex? That most people just talk about it in a very, like, here's how you get a guy. That's how people who I grew up with were speaking about it. It was like how to get somebody versus how to have pleasure and how to make yourself feel good. And I think that this new generation is talking about that more, which is like very exciting. But most people, like they just have an issue talking about sex normally. And in like, like, I'm not saying that we talk about it in an unsexy way. It's just like in a very matter of fact way where it's like, yeah, it's like a part of life. Like it, it shouldn't be this taboo thing because the second something is taboo and like is not talked about is where we like leave areas for danger. Do you feel like that's changed in your experience, like hosting this podcast and talking to people? Yeah, people seem down to go down in a very good way. Like, I feel like there was a, a revolution with eating box and with eating ass. And they were about the same time. And it was exciting. It was an exciting time. I When we were in high school, I remember like feeling bad if like a guy wanted to go down on you or, you know, like I would be like, no, I know that you don't like this. Like I've heard tell that you guys hate this and that we smell or whatever. And like, now it's like, there's been a whole pussy power movement. That's really nice. Ben, my boyfriend ate my ass the first time we hooked up. That's beautiful. It was beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad the world has changed. And he loved it. <laughs> you talk to a lot of sex workers or people who do sex work on your podcast. Like, how has hosting this podcast changed your preconceptions about sex work? Oh my God, it's so much. Like, okay, so what's interesting is I wrote a paper in sixth grade on why, at the time I said prostitution, but why sex work should be legal. So I've always been on the pro-sex work bandwagon, but it's like funny that like I have to do a lot of unlearning just because of what society like flops on you all the time. And like, I think I came in to the podcast with some, I don't know, not negative feelings, but I remember on one episode, somebody was telling me that they had hired someone and I was like, oh, but like, it's illegal. And they were like, but you like smoke weed all the time. That's illegal. And I was like, you're right. Like, so yeah, in a weird way, I've always been pro, but I've always had these like societal notions that I'd be like, but it's bad. Like, I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's wonderful. So one thing that has kind of changed since you started the podcast was kind of explosion of OnlyFans and the way that sex work and the sex industry has changed. How have you kind of watched that change happen? I love it. It's obviously been tumultuous because of like the Bella Thorne scandal and all that stuff happening. But I think it's really cool to see people finding a space where they can share things that they want to share and people will sign up and 
pay them and they can feel safe about it and that their stuff isn't going to get leaked. I mean, sometimes it does, but it's nice that people can make an income off of something and that other people are less judgmental about it now. I feel like you're like a rude boyfriend if you tell your girlfriend she can't have an OnlyFans. <laughs> I want to start an only feet, I think, eventually. And Ben has now said he's down for that. But at one point, like, he was like, no, I don't want you to have that kind of a relationship with other people because it's like, you know, sexual from there. And I'm like, and people already have a sexual relationship with me. Like, can't prevent that. You can just make money off of it at least. Would you say that people have gotten, you've had this podcast for like five years, right? Yeah. Just about, would you say people have gotten more or less horny online? More horny. Why do you think that is? Okay. So what's so funny is like one of my like hesitations too, when I first started was just like that I would become like sex girl and that everybody would be like, oh, Remy's posting about like butt plugs again and like just see me in this one light. And now every single podcaster has like sex toy spawn con. Like it's as common as mattresses. Like you don't even have to have a podcast about sex to have like a promo code for a dildo. And it's wonderful. But like, yeah, I think everybody has gotten hornier online probably because of several movements, but also probably because of the pandemic. Like everybody was cooped up. Like online is where you lived. When we first locked down, I was like, this is the time. If you haven't come, like plug in, strap on, get to work. Do you think the pandemic really did have an effect on that? Like were people just like so excited to have like any kind of like social output that they just went online and that's where the horniness came from? Totally. Yeah, they were horny online and talking about it and tweeting about it and posting their titties and everybody was getting all hyped. And then the second like the vaccine came out, everybody was so horny in public. Another thing that's really grown during the pandemic is TikTok. And you're really active on there. What's your experience been like on that platform? I love TikTok. TikTok is an amazing place to be horny. Do you think so? They're so aggressive about censorship. Oh, well, okay. True. Like whenever you're trying to educate somebody and like talk about what parts are called and like how to have an orgasm, yes, you get shadow banned and whatever. But for like, like there's this one guy who does thirst traps and like, I love him. <laughs> like there are so many hot girls that like really helped me just really affirm my bisexuality on there. Do you have any nominees for any straight people or people with straight vibes that you're currently obsessed with? I was thinking about the fact that this person is straight the other day. I think, I'm not sure if she actually is. I think she is, but I was wondering. And my nomination is for Rachel Sennett. She's coming out in a movie called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. She was in another movie called Shiva Baby. And she's a great straight because I would not have had my first orgasm if not for Rachel Sennett. Why is that? So funnily enough, my assignments aren't the thing that made me do the first come. I was like on the New York City comedy podcast circuit because all my friends, like once I like came out as anorgasmic, were like, we need to talk about this. And I went on The Good, The Dad, and The Ugly, which is a podcast that three male comics host and they only have female comics on. And they were like, wait, so have you tried like a clitoral suction toy? Because like Rachel Sennett did that and like it worked for her. I was like, no, I haven't. And I ordered the same one that she did. And that's the thing that ended up happening. So I call her like my big, big, like in a sorority, like she inspired my orgasm via generations. This is with a womanizer, right? Yeah. Okay. So if womanizer wants to sponsor us, 
<laughs> so I guess to close, what's your advice for someone who can't come but is poor? If you can't come and you're poor, invest in the very free podcast, How Come. We're available anywhere podcasts are available. Everybody is different. Everybody is shaped differently, comes differently. Some people need to be plugged up in all of their holes. Some people need external wearing their jeans and humping. Try everything that you can try and don't judge yourself in the process because if you're inclined to do it, probably somebody else has done it too, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And everything is consensual if you're doing it with another partner. And yeah, like have a little self-love story. You'll enjoy it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on, Remy. Oh my God, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And a blast, which is how I come sometimes if you do it properly. Welcome to Himbo of the Week, the segment where we introduce the most head-empty hotties on the internet. As a guest co-host this week, I am so, so excited to be able to do this Himbo because, I mean, he's been a Himbo my whole life. I've been obsessed with him the entire time. If you've seen Wild Things or A Few Good Men or Footloose or basically any movie made in the mid-80s or early 90s, you will recognize this voice immediately. I know what you're thinking. If he's doing a goat song, why is he making popcorn in a walk? I would say it's time to walk on woe, but that would be too much of a dad joke. Yes, Kevin Bacon of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon is on TikTok. And honestly, as far as high-profile celebs on TikTok go, he's one of the good ones. He doesn't just try to jump on dumb trends or do cringe dances. He posts wholesome content where he sings Harry Styles to his goats and enjoys cooking popcorn on a walk to make popcorn necklaces. In one video, he tries to track down a poster from one of his old movies at the subway station in Queens. And I am pleased to report that he wears a mask throughout the entirety of his time in the Metropolitan Trans authority subway system i cannot help but stand that's very impressive to me honestly because no one wears masks on the subway i know right and uh, of course he would like of course he would because he's perfect he's perfect he's a perfect man so kevin bacon is really proof of how god blesses you when you choose to be unproblematic as far as i'm aware he's never been canceled for saying something stupid he's been in a stable marriage with kira cedric for the past 34 years and he is still wildly hot Arguably even hotter than his footloose years. Do you know that my best friend looks exactly like Kevin Bacon and a single, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Now you tell me shit. Yeah, I was waiting to spring this on you. (laughs) (laughs) On a podcast? Yeah, we can talk more about this offline, maybe. Okay. (laughs) So Kevin Bacon, not EJ's best friend, has a band with his brother called the Bacon Brothers, and sometimes he'll play their tunes. I wouldn't say I'm as fond of that as I am of like the goat content, where he wears like tight t-shirts and sexy little Stanley Tucci glasses which I love are a thing now. But it's a small price for me to pay as an avid consumer of himbo content. I don't even mind that he posted a video of himself surrounded by goats singing a parody Tom Jones song in praise of Tom Brady. I hate Tom Brady more than I hate pretty much anyone else in the world. So that's saying something. So congrats to our himbo of the week, Kevin Bacon. I also want to add, on a slight side note, Kevin Bacon's son used to work at a popular metal bar in Brooklyn that I used to frequent. And his son must have been, I don't know, I think he was all of like 23, 22. But Kevin would come by sometimes. And like, he was like very supportive of like his son being like in the metal scene. 
Were they nice? So nice. Oh my God. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, no, there's nothing problematic at all. He was just like a supportive dad to his like 20 something son. There's nothing I love more than a Nepo baby who chooses not to take advantage of their Nepo baby status. Oh my God. Absolutely. Yeah. He just like I wanted really to respect like, that. he just wanted to like hang out with like cool metal bands. And I mean, honestly, who doesn't? So I get it. If anyone is a few degrees away from Kevin, please message us so we can get him on the podcast. <laughs> Do you want to close out with his rendition of He's a Brady? <laughs> Well, he's done amazing things, and he's got those seven rings, he's a winner. Still looks good in football pants, and he's mostly eating plants when he has dinner. He's a Brady. Whoa, 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 he's a Brady. Hold on, you was calling for way too long now. Maybe you should get some food, get some water, and then come back later. Thanks so much for listening to Don't Let This Flop. Please share this podcast with someone you love or someone you hate. Either way, we don't care which one. This podcast is brought to you by Rolling Stone and Cumulus Podcast Network, written and hosted by me, Brittany Spanos, and EJ Dixon. Executive produced by Jason Fine, Bridget Chelsea, and Elizabeth Garber-Paul, and produced by Jesse Cannon, with music by Brian DiMeglio.